This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Thank you so much for joining us on Geeks Out. Oh no! Thank you for having me. I'm such a. Such, it's, I'm I'm really enjoying these interviews, and I, I was like looking forward to this one. So thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, I know absolutely. I, I had a chance to watch um uh, Night Bloomers. I, I was surprised it was all so short that it all came together in under an hour, and it was just such an easy watch. Yeah, a little bite-sized anthology series. Yeah, yeah. Getting into the meat of it, you know, because horror is considered an expression of the cultural anxieties of its makers and audiences. Mm. You do have here this collection of stories. It's about a Korean-Australian diaspora. Going into more detail, what are the anxieties that are being expressed through this anthology? Yeah, that's such a great question. You know, I think the evilness and the manifestations and mechanizations of the goblins and the ghosts and the night creatures all comes from, I guess, anxieties. I love that word that you used from uh they you know fractured identities from migration you know their sense of belonging in this country being othered also from you know homophobia within the community to yeah identity problems that aren't related to their racial backgrounds or just you know their place in the world like how who who are they now moving to this country and at a particular point in their life to how how do these people find uh, fulfill, a way of fulfilling their lives to their rich, the most richest potential so yes for sure. A lot of anxiety. <laughs> a lot of anxieties. I mean, one theme that I've picked up on is that you have the you you have immigrant generally parents mm. and their Australian-born children, some of whom have probably never been to Korea. There does seem to be that yeah. generational disconnect mm. that goes there. And can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, that's really good observation because yeah, they they do central. You know, the story is all uh, revolving around you know familiar like intergenerational relationships. There is a sense of loss of like, culture and identity and loss of language. Um, and through one of the episodes in particular, you know the side effects of assimilation and what we call whitewashing, where we have kind of pushed down our Koreanness so that we can fit in. Uh, and then in, 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 in other episodes, it's like we've forgotten our culture, um, and how that's going to be the demise of us. But, you know, I always, each episode flips it on its head. There's always mm. a twist at the end so that I lead the audience down a path, but then also say, well, that's not the answer. You know, culture is not going to save us. What's going to save us is, you know, fixing our problems with our mothers and parents or, you know, addressing the relationship issues, um, and not necessarily, the cultural elements of who we are it's it's all in the relationships um, there does seem to be you know also a bit of pining from the younger characters yeah for their sense of koreanness that they're yeah. a bit removed from yeah yeah correct correct yeah now um another thing that i've noticed there's a couple of references which i thought yes. which um i know even though i've not experienced that firsthand it is still a bit of a, a kick to the gut for folks who might not be familiar with how you know race dynamics and cultural dynamics work with food can you tell us a little bit more about that for sure for sure you know this is this is this question has come up a few times and i originally didn't write to have it that much food in the in this series 
But I think when we were developing the series with, you know, essentially uh, non-Korean development execs, I think food was a very accessible way to understand our culture and mm. i think i think everyone loves korean food also they just it was this, it was a safe place to explore an issue that wasn't political or deep in you know racial issues or inequality like there was this it was a, it was always a safe place to go to but then when we were developing the series the more food we put in the more like we linked oh yeah korean food is always linked you know one of the central themes is death and mortality there's always food at these events. There's always food at the at the funeral. There's always food, you know, when we do these rituals. And so it just kind of innately made sense to have a lot of food in there. Um, and there's the, there's a lot of eating. There's a lot of eating of people. So it just kind of organically became something bigger and had more meaning to it. Like, you know, when the goblin's eating the pancakes, when it rains, like that's what we do. We eat we eat pancakes when it rains. Um, I don't know the origin of that, but I think it was because it would calm down people. Ooh, in my family, it would calm down people when there was a thunderstorm. The way my mum would say it, it's like we would eat, she would literally say, this is what we eat when it rains. Might be different to why she ate pancakes when it rained. But yeah, there's always a, a reason why there was a food in there in the end, um, because the mother was trying to calm down the goblin. You know, one of the most powerful examples for me, like, you know, first five minutes into the first short woman who'd grown up in Broken Hill and most of her, you know, the <laughs> Korean food she served had substitute from coals. Yes, yes, yeah. And then her really woke friends were the ones educating her how to cook Korean food. Yes, yes. Yeah. That, that that was absolutely a kick to the guts when I um I watched that. But getting more to the to the horror here, you know, some of these shorts they deal with, you know, like you said, goblins, but there's ghosts, um, some other monsters in here as well. You know, that draw from Korean you know folklore and myth. Sorry. So okay, you've got you've got a lot of like Korean monsters. How do you you know, how have you interpreted them through an Australian lens when producing um, Night Bloomers? Yeah, okay. So these monsters, the monsters that are used and creatures belong to, I guess, Korean folklore. Um, I think there's one episode, which I won't give away, that isn't traditionally Korean, but I imbued it anyways. And so I took a modern twist because essentially these folklore stories and these monster stories were used and told during, you know, great political upheaval or during times of war because we, we you know korea has a terrible history of a lot of trauma and these stories came out of these experiences in a way to kind of deal with the realities that was so overwhelming but also a way to kind of navigate people or teach people in terms of like guide them in how they should lead their lives so they very much still have that essence of like you know as migrants in australia if you have identity problems you know, if you don't deal with it, if you don't go to it, if you don't lean into it, it's going to keep you in a cycle. You know, so you're going to keep re doing the maladaptive behaviors. And for another episode is, uh, if we keep, you know, if we keep hiding in a certain way of you know, hiding our queerness or burying our queerness and, um, uh, it's gonna, it's gonna be, it's gonna become something more violent or, you know, it, there's always a lesson in, in, in these stories. So that's, I guess, the Australian, the way I Australianized it in, in that sense of like teaching the Korean Australian audiences, um, how to deal with their reality in another way. Yeah. yeah. Because we do have these creatures, yep. um, following across generations and they're being the embodiment of what seems to have come before. 
Definitely, definitely. Yeah, so yeah, I'm just thinking like the goblin is can represent this intergenerational trauma that has been passed down of hoarding and how we try to survive. Um, and the goblin is like eating, eating everything. So yeah, I don't, I don't want to give it away, but yeah, it definitely does have a mechanization of, you know, these intergenerational elements in the characters. Yeah, for sure. Now you mentioned before mm. that, uh, you know, about the lingering evil and, you know, there's even a quote at the start about, you know, um, how to disconnect and banish evil. Mm. Are these creatures evil? Yeah. Thank you for that question. They they are both malevolent and you know, they're both good and evil, <clears throat> and they're both mischievous and cunning. And you know they have dimension. They're not just this one type of antagonist who are out to just destroy them. They have yeah they have a bit more dynamic purpose to them. But in Korean ancient folklore belief, the only way we can kind of deal with these kind of creatures and evilness or um we call it um puri which is the tensions and the knots in our hearts that cause problems so say if you have problems with your mother you know and you, your mother dies and then you have a child that tension and knot stays within your heart and it keeps getting passed down and so that that tension and knot in your heart will then manifest into um in this series into a ghost or uh, a monster or something so yeah they they are evil but they are also there to help you at the same time i mean this is kind of embodied in um episode two where there's a and I, i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing it correctly the uh jessa ritual Jessa, yeah 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 um which is a death ritual <laughs> uh yeah so we think of death um and the grim reaper um as something that is yeah i guess i could find a, a western version is the grim reaper who's there to kind of take you away is can be perceived as evil but is also there to take away the pain and to take away to resolve your issues yeah i think the grim reaper would be the closest thing that i can draw a parallel in western context yeah and it's definitely not a, a good or an evil thing it's just our fear of death that is uh, yeah. tied to that mm. You know, getting on production, you know, you've got some some solid names here joining, you know, Ra Chapman, Deborah Ahn, Helen Kim. Um, you're also co-writing, you know, Ra Chapman also co-writes along with Jacob Holmes Brown, um, Suzanne mm-hmm. Suhyun Kim. Yeah. How did all of this come together? Oh, uh, yeah. So the development process, it started out as a film. And during the time I was pitching it for a film, there was a push to make episodic dramas, like the streamings, the streamers were coming, which I'm really glad because now I work at TV. So then because it went into episodic, uh, I needed to have a team of writers so that I can allocate episodes. Yeah, my experiences, a lot of my kind of growing up experiences are in this series, but a lot of their experiences are in in their episodes and across the series of like how we've experienced our migration journey. Um, you know, Ra, Ra Chapman is an adoptee Korean and she deals with like a lot with whitewashing and assimilation and self-hatred of who we are as Koreans when we were growing up. Suze's story explores, you know, her relationship with her mother and how her mother has feels like she's lost her identity because she's moved to this country and doesn't know who she is. So yeah, it's, it's, it's all very personal. It's all very, you know, truthful and authentic to our experiences. And, and I imagine a lot of eagerness to get these stories out as well. Yeah, there is, yeah, there is a, there is a hunger. I was telling, um, 
you know, the other teams that there is a real hunger to tell our stories because on a global scale, the Korean diaspora and Korean people are like just powerhouses in telling stories. So we as Australians want to play a part in that and tell our side of the story. For sure, because uh, Australia is multicultural <laughs> in theory sometimes. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but I also want to get to, because, you know, we are a, I call us a gaydio station. Yeah, um, that there are a couple of queer stories in there as well. Uh, tell us how that falls in there. You mentioned that there was, uh, you know, some homophobia within these stories as well. Yeah, yeah. I think the series has a very queer lens on it um, overall. Um, so in particular, you know, the more obvious ones with the two paramedics, which I won't give away the story, but, you know, essentially the two husbands who are quarrelling over about having kids and you know so there's deep homophobia within the korean australian community more so than in probably in korea because korea has kind of moved on and modernized and we are in australia we're a bit of like a broken clock syndrome where the, we still we still brought up on 1970s values i wanted to yeah we've never had a gay korean on australian tv so i'm really happy about that i would and now we've got portrayals of at least two yeah, and so, yeah, yeah, and so the other one was the female kind of um, attraction, and so when Ron Chapman was writing that episode, this desire to be the person you think you are, so as a Korean who may have identity issues, might look at you know look at Korean women like oh, I want to be that, I want to be a Korean woman, I want to be an authentic Korean woman. They're so beautiful, maybe, and that's why she starts to mimic a Korean woman, like a native Korean woman. But then also, make, or maybe I want to have sex with her. Maybe I like want to be like that, you know, go beyond that. I mean, Ra will explain it much better than I. But then also envy that at the same time. So it's like this kind of melting pot of different psychological feelings of wanting to be something or wanting to belong. With that, there is a queer lens through it. And But she takes, the other character takes it as if she's hitting on her and, you know, there is a homophobia about that. There's definitely a queer theme in, in this series, is what I'm saying. And, you know, it along with everything else, um, very powerful, very evocative. Thank you for putting it together. Yeah. I think we have time for um, one last question. You know, before we go, uh, yeah. are you psyched for Halloween? Of course, I'm always psyched for Halloween. <laughs> As, you know, that's when the gays and, like, we have a lot of fun. We can be our wild, crazy, like, obscure, strange selves and just be liberating. I think it's a great time. Also because it's also when horror and ghosts and all the stuff that I love comes to the surface and is celebrated. Um, you know, not everyone loves horror, but I feel like Halloween opens that up for people and, you know, embrace the weirdness of queerness. I think ties a lot to yes. the heart, like the ugly and the beautiful and the beautiful and the ugly. 100%, 100%. And, um, and also just the parties are just so fun. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, happy Halloween, Andrew. Happy Halloween. Um, and thank you so much. Thank you for, for joining us. And everyone check out Night Bloomers. It's, it's great. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.